Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 7. This morning, before Sunday school, I saw an old friend. That was Jose. He came walking into my office, and Jose has been in India for quite some time, and we love Jose. And, and he walked towards me, and I reached out by hand. I was going to shake his hand, and he didn't do that. He just grabbed me. You know, that's the way Jose is. He just grabbed me, and he hugged me, and said, I'm glad to see you. I was thinking as we were singing just a moment ago, I'm happy in the service of the king. I was thinking about um, my little granddaughter who lives down in San Diego. I don't get to see her as often as I'd like to because they're far away from us. But sometimes I'll go and visit there and um, she's in preschool and my daughter won't tell her that I'm coming. And so she'll say, you go over and pick her up after school and surprise her. And so I walk in, and she's in her class, not expecting me to be there. And she sees me, and her face lights up, and she comes running towards me, and she says, I am so happy to see you. (laughs) And that makes you feel good, doesn't it? Well, I was thinking about that as we were singing the song, I'm happy in the service of the King. What it will be like when we come into the presence of Christ, when we look him in the face, and I think we're going to say, I am so happy to see you. And he'll say, I am so happy to see you. But as we read these verses this morning, there are some that Christ is not going to be too happy to see. It's a very sobering thought. Our text verses today are Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. These verses are part of the sobering conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Would you stand with me, please, as we read God's Word? Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Heavenly Father, As we look into your word today, I just pray that you'd open up our hearts to the message that you'd have us to see. And Lord, we pray that there might not be anyone here in this congregation today who would hear the Lord say, depart from me, I never knew you. And Lord, I'm afraid that there might be. And so that's why we preach a message that we preach today. Bless your people, bless as we listen to the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Each week we're getting a little bit closer to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it seems that coming close to the end of this, we would be trying to just tidy up a few things as we get into chapter 8, make that transition. And perhaps we may think that the people that were listening to Jesus this particular, at this particular time in the Sea of Galilee were much like we see in Baptist churches today, that you have a sense when I'm coming down to the end of the message. I mean, I tell you, Lots of times that I am. You have a listening sheet and you have the blanks there for you to fill out. And so you can kind of watch that and you see when we're getting close to the end of the sermon. And since you're armed with that information, what some of you do is you take the listening sheet before I finish and you tuck it into your Bible, put it away. And when you get that last blank, you start to tune out what I'm saying. Now, the problem is, at the end of the sermon, there's always an application that's made. There's an exhortation for you to carefully think over what's been said. 
Well, there never was a sermon that had such an important conclusion as the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that the people were listening and they were riveted to Jesus' voice. They listened intently. He was raking over the coals, the false teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he was relentless about their misapplication of the God's Word and the invention that they had of this self-righteous system, religious system that did nothing but to leave them cold, dead, and hard. Every facet of their religion was wrong. They were wrong about righteousness. They were wrong about their relationships with others. They were wrong about the way that they worshipped. And it was obvious at this point that Jesus was not going to leave them hanging without a solution to all of this. And so I can see the people as they were glancing around through that crowd... And there were scribes and Pharisees that were scattered throughout and they were just looking over there and kind of wondering, are they embarrassed by what Jesus is saying? And they were looking to see if those people were red-faced about his scathing comments about them. And while they're looking at other people, Jesus snaps them back to attention with verses 13 and 14. And he put the onus on them, and he made them consider. If the religious leaders, if our religious leaders, the ones that are teaching us, if they're on their way to hell, then what hope have we? And so Jesus wanted them to think about this. Do you really know me? He said there are few that find the way to eternal life. Then in verse number 15, he went back to the religious leaders, and he called them wolves in sheep's clothing. And he told the people, beware of them. You need to watch out for them. Look at the fruit in their lives. He said a person that is a corrupt teacher is going to show bad fruit. And he said a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. So you watch what they do. You see how that they live. And as they did, they found out that Jesus' words fit their religious leaders to a T. They were very vile and corrupt. In chapter 6, he called them hypocrites. Their giving was hypocritical. Their prayers were hypocritical. Their acts of devotion were hypocritical. Everything that they did was selfish. And they did it all for their own glory, not for the glory of God. And so we come to verses 21 through 23. And those that were the most pious among them, the most sanctimonious, they're the ones that said, Lord, Lord. And that was the equivalent of saying, we trust in the living God. We continue to honor him. We we, we have a habit of honoring God. But you'll notice that Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto be Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now there Jesus is declaring that he is God, and he says that not everyone who makes a profession of him is actually in possession of eternal life. Now we discussed that in the first two messages as the fervent proposition. There are some that are not going to heaven. There, there are some that think that they are, but they really aren't. And these self-proclaimed righteous among them, those that claimed that they were doing God's work, those that had all the outward showy signs of religion, the ones that were leading them, were not actually in the kingdom of God. They were false professors. They were self-deluded. Jesus said again, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And he said, they're on their way to destruction. Now the connection with verses 15 through 20 is evident. The same ones that are described in those verses are the ones that he speaks of in verses 21 through 23. But we ought not to sit back here and think that there's not an application in this for every one of us. You know, I spent five weeks going over appalling preachers in verses 15 through 20, and I, had a, I was in an attempt there to expose them and to help you to identify when a person is not teaching the truth of God's Word. But you need to go back to verses 13 and 14. 
The false teacher, that is a real problem. But Jesus intended to go further than them. He goes to you. You can be deluded by a false teacher. That's a problem. But the greatest danger that you can ever have is that you have deluded yourself. You have fooled yourself into believing that you are okay, that you are saved, that there is no question about it. There's no need for you to examine your faith to see if your faith is really genuine. And that's where the words of this passage become so striking because they're aimed at us. And the real test of Christianity, according to Jesus, is not what you say. It's not whether you can repeat creeds and confessions. It's not have you walked an aisle and have you signed somebody's card. It's not what mom and dad did. It's not the fact that you went to Sunday school when you were young. And it's not the fact that you even got dunked in the tank over there. That's not what determines that you are a child of God. The real test of Christianity is do you do the will of God? He says there are some that who will not enter, but those who do the will of God, those are the ones who will. And this is where the truth hits home. Where is the real evidence of your Christianity? Arthur Pink wrote, We seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in the history of this Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God abideth on them. You know, I believe Pink is right about that. I know that he's right because from this position where I stand, I can see what some of you do. Week after week, I see what you do. And I know he's right when there are people who come into church and they have anger on their faces, when there is smugness in them, when they have an axe to grind. And even as I'm speaking here from the Word of God, there might even be somebody across the room that you loathe. Some of you may be angry because you don't get enough recognition. Some of you feel slighted. You get upset with me or you get upset with someone else in the church because you're not given the credit you think is due. That you are a better servant of God than you're given credit for. So there are people like this that claim righteousness, but the heart gets colder and colder by the minute. And the blame for it is put on everybody else. It's what everybody else does. It's not me. And the reason they feel that way is because they have not closely examined their heart to see if they're truly in the faith. And this is part of the problem. There are deficiencies. They haven't heard the word of God correctly. They won't repent of their hardness. They won't subject themselves to the lordship of Christ. They won't put self down. They don't resolve to follow after God with all their heart. They say that they do, but the words ring hollow. So they don't show it in the attitude. Most people outside of the church would never know that they're Christians. Not unless they actually mouth it and say that I am. And sometimes there are people in the church that wonder about them too. And that's because there is no sweetness in their walk. They just don't have an attitude that a child of God would have. See, being a Christian is not a Sunday thing. It's not a Wednesday night thing. Being a Christian is 24-7. And the burning proposition here is that many say they know the Lord. They may be emphatic that they know him. But Jesus says they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, we have to go on from that. That is the fervent proposition But we have to go on because there's more here than just the proposition that there are many who profess to be Christians, but they really aren't. Because the force of its statement makes its impact in verses 22 and 23. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work 
iniquity. And what we find in these two verses, verses 22 and 23, is the frightening conclusion. The frightening conclusion. Now, perhaps one of the strangest statements that we find in the Bible is found in verse number 22. There were people who could actually do miracles. There are those who preached with great signs and wonders. Something supernatural was happening. But they weren't really Christians. I want you to turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 19. This is an account of the Apostle Paul's preaching in the city of Ephesus. That was a very important city for the worship of Diana, one of the, one of the mythological gods of the Greeks. And there was a magnificent temple that had been built there. The last part of the chapter talks about Paul's faithful preaching. And with the preaching, there was a conversion of many Gentiles that were brought to the faith. And Paul's preaching had brought the whole city to an uproar. Paul spent two years preaching in Ephesus. That was the longest time that he spent in any place in his missionary journeys. And from this place of Ephesus, a a center of false worship, the word of God began to spread out and all of Asia heard about the faith of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look at verse number 11. Acts 19 verse 11. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons And the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now that seems very strange, doesn't it? People that weren't saved had the ability to cast out devils. And the Bible says that they were exorcists. They'd been practicing this. Now, what they tried to do is they tried to use the name of Jesus to cast out a devil and the results of that weren't very good. Now, what we see here, and the point that I'm trying to make, is that there is supernatural activity. And whenever you hear about that, whenever you see it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit is the cause of it. The devil constantly counterfeits. That happens every single day. Just like being a Christian is 24-7, the devil counterfeits the things of God 24-7. And so some of you may have seen some incredible things happen, and you may have laid all of that at the feet of Jesus, when in fact it should have been laid toward the brain of Satan. Jesus warned about this in Matthew chapter 24. He said, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So you can't count on many wonderful works as proof that people are saved. The, de- the devil can counterfeit works. He counterfeits the emotions of it. He counterfeits all of it. And the reason that he does it is to deceive you. Now notice something about all of these works. All of these works that are claimed, something you need to notice about it is that there is going to be a review and a reckoning. One of these days, all of these works are going to be opened up and they will be examined. Verse number 22 begins, Many will say to me in that day. Now what day is he speaking of? Well, he's speaking of the day of judgment. And by the time that the judgment comes, there is no reversal of the outcome. 
And we're going to get to that a little bit later. But you need to be aware of this, that you need to know about your faith right now. You need to know if you're really saved. You can't put it off. And that's why the apostles urged examination. They said, look at your heart. Look at what you believe. Look at who you are and see if there's real evidence that you believe in God. You know, see, at the same time that they're teaching the safety and the security of those who have trusted Christ, they're also teaching this self-examination that says that you have to be sure that you are actually saved before you can be assured that you're actually saved. Does that make sense to you? We're never told to sit back and just simply make the assumption so there will be a review. The Bible says that we're going to give account of everything that we've done. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Now what that means is that God is not a sloppy record keeper. He keeps record of all of it. There is no such thing as fooling God. There is no such thing as sins that will skate by. And you're not going to be able to count on hard drive failure either. God's going to have it all. And God knows of what sort every work is. So there is a day coming. And another really interesting point about it is that Jesus says in that day. uh, That means it's at a future date. And what he's describing here is people who have died. They are actually in hell. And apparently all that time they've been preparing their case when they're going to be brought up to judgment. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to say. And the ones that Jesus was speaking to here have been dead now for 2,000 years. And they're still waiting for the judgment. And after all of that time, they're brought up before the righteous judge. And after spending time in hell, they cry out with him to him even more fervor than ever before. And they say, Lord, Lord. And I would dare say that they have far more compunction then to plead for the Lord or say, Lord, Lord, than you do have now. And what they're doing is they're trying everything that they possibly can to present their case. And do you notice that not once, but three times they claim this? We did this in your name. We, we preached in your name. We cast out devils in your name. We did many wonderful works in your name. And I wonder how many people have convinced themselves of the same arguments You could never plead as hard then as they do now. Your pleas are made to convince you, and they convince your family, they convince your friends, they might even convince me. But you're never going to make the case in that day like you will now. You understand what I'm saying here? And that day is somewhere in the future. And so what you need to do is you need to sort out all of your arguments right now. You'd better be so convinced by the examination of everything that you do, by your motives, by your heart, by every word that you speak, you had better have an airtight case that you know that you're saved. Because you could leave this life without an ounce of hope later. You know, I don't understand why church people don't get that. If you can go on day after day with a rotten attitude and little tweets and face-offs on Facebook and fun-filled Saturday nights with whatever it is that you do, if you can continue that without ever thinking about why you do it, then you're the biggest fool that ever lived. Because you'll stand before God sheepishly with awe and respect, and you'll say, Lord, Lord, knowing full well what his answer will be. See, there's never any indication in this scripture that the people that cry out in that day are still self-deluded. Time in hell, and I don't have time to explain all of that, but when a person dies, they, they go and, if they don't know Christ, they go into hell then, and they're called up for judgment later, and then they're cast in the lake of fire. 
But they're going to be called up in judgment here. And, and time they're spent in hell already since the time that they died hasn't changed their thinking about this. The previous torture did not cause them to say, well, you know, this is what I deserve, even though they know it's what they deserve. They're still going to cry out, Lord, Lord, and they'll still say, we did it in your name. And many are saying that right now. You've tried to weigh out your sins. And what you've tried to do is you've tried to balance that out against the things that you do right. Balance your sins against the good things that are in your life. And you'll find out that nothing avails Nothing like that avails for the righteousness that you need. Now that's what we want to look at next for a minute. Righteousness is the requirement. Many of you have been with us for the entire study of the Sermon on the Mount, and you can't have missed this, because I keep telling you over and over, the key verse of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, verse number 20. Jesus said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Their righteousness was self-righteousness, self-deluded righteousness. It was the invention of the things they thought God required. And it was nothing at all like what God required. What God wants is holiness. What God wants is truth. What God wants is for you to be like him and do the things that he does. And if you're not striving for that every single day of your life, if you can pass off sin without the awesome fear of what sin has caused then you don't know Christ. And this boggles my mind what many churches and preachers are doing today. There is no hell in their preaching. There is no sin in their preaching. There is no wrath in their preaching. There is no consequences in their preaching. They don't know anything at all about what God requires. Because you can't understand righteousness unless you understand sin. And you can't really understand heaven unless you know about hell. And you can't understand what being saved is unless you know that you're lost. You know, we always say that the first thing that you have to do to get a lost person saved is to make them understand that they're lost. You have to get them lost before you can get them saved. But evidently, there aren't too many people lost, are there? Because you go into these churches today, nobody's lost. You aren't lost. You just need to correct a few things. You need to straighten up a few inconsistencies. You need to be a better person. And maybe you don't even have to do that because everything that you're doing right now is really okay. That's fine. It's just that you need to do those while you go to church. And so they preach that you need to be self-fulfilled. You need happiness in your life. You need to know how to cope with work and how to deal with your kids and how to make house payments. But none of that is what God requires. That may be what you require, But don't ever assume that your requirements are necessarily synonymous with God. Someday these people are going to stand before God and they'll say, Lord, Lord, and they'll roll out the list of all the things that they've done and God is going to look at that and he's going to say, what are you talking about, fool? None of that is what I require. What does God require? Oh, we've had three chapters to discover this and it's not really different from what we've read in these three chapters. And you know something, folks? If you can read back over this, read back all three chapters, and you read about meekness and mourning and mercy and killing and anger and reconciliation and adultery and prayer and and giving and forgiveness and money and judging and hypocrisy and love, if you read back all all over that again, go back over it again, if you don't come to the conclusion that you have miserably failed God in your life, then you have not understood what Jesus is speaking of. 
If your heart is no different, if you haven't received the righteousness that God gives by faith, if a radical change has not taken place in your life, then you don't have God's requirements. And you'll say, Lord, Lord. But those words will ring as hollow as a gourd. Many will say to me in that day, and what a day that will be. You know, we sing that song, what a day it will be. When my Jesus I shall see. And I want to talk about that next. What will it be like when you meet Jesus? Because here's what you need to know. Jesus is the judge. John 5.22. Jesus said all judgment is committed to the Son. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face. The one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. And I'm afraid that there are people who sing the song with all sincerity, but when they see Jesus face to face, it will be a much different story. Because they haven't been saved by his grace. All that they've done is sing the song. That's as close as they ever got. You see, there are some people that listen to me preach. And if you don't come often here, you, you, you might have the idea that I never had an idea that we have a compassionate Savior. But the truth is, I could hardly sing a song like we just sang a moment ago, The Power of the Cross. I could hardly sing that without thinking about how vile that I am and to think that God had compassion upon me. Every morning when I get up, I I thank God that he sent Christ to die for me. And I thank him for loving me, even though I know when I'm thanking him for that and when I'm praying to him, I know that before that day is over, I'm going to fail him in some way. And yet I thank him because Jesus makes up every deficiency that I have. On a daily basis, he is my advocate and he appears before the Father in heaven. He deflects Satan's claims that I should be disowned. He pleads his own blood for my righteousness. So I am acutely aware of a compassionate Savior. And maybe I don't say enough about it because I can't say enough about it. That side will be seen over and over again as we go through the book of Matthew. But I'm also acutely aware of where we are right now in Matthew. And I'm not deluded into thinking that there will be a time of judgment when Jesus is holding on to the Father's ankles and he's crying and he's pleading that no one should go to hell. That somehow God is not really compassionate enough if anybody goes to hell. But what I see in these verses is that Jesus says, Many shall say to me in that day. And he says that, he says to me. And that tells me that he is the true judge and that, and that there are some who don't really know him and some he will say, Depart from me. And I also see in verses 13 and 14 that there are far more that are on the broad path to destruction than are on the narrow path to eternal life. And so that means a lot of people, majority of the world is going to stand before God without hope. And many of them will think that they had it all right because some preachers said that they were all right. There were a lot of them that jumped up and down in church. They sang the songs and they swayed to the music. They clapped their hands and they held them up high. But they're going to be in this crowd. And not only them, but some that sat in this church that were conservative and listened to the messages that warned about all of this stuff. They agreed with it. But they're brought up before judgment And the Jesus that they said that they couldn't wait to see is the one who actually condemns them to hell. You see, there are many people who are not really in love with God. They're in love with what they think God is. And they're not in love with Jesus. They're in love with how they have pictured Jesus in their minds. 
And it's an amazing thing, the idol that people have made of Jesus in their minds. I mean, they, they have an idea of what they think God should be. He fits very nicely into a little box that they made for him. He walks around in sandals and he wears a robe. He blesses the beast and the children. And he never met anybody to whom he ever said, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you. But that is exactly what he did say. God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Brimstone burned the place to oblivion. And Jesus said there are some who will have it far worse than they. Let me show you something about that scripture. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said similar things on other occasions, but let's look at what he says in chapter 11, beginning with verse 20. Matthew 11, beginning with verse number 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Jesus had done many mighty miracles among the Jews around the Sea of Galilee. These cities that he mentions here, they're around the Sea of Galilee. Tyre and Sidon were in the adjoining country that was next to Galilee. They were Gentile cities, and God had judged them. He had judged them for idolatry. But Jesus says, if I had done the kind of works that I've done here, in these cities around Galilee, if I had done the very same works over there in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. They would have said, we're sorry, God, what we've done. We would have trusted you. And the reason that I bring this up is for you to consider what you have heard. For over a year, we've been studying in the Sermon on the Mount. For weeks, we've been here in this, these closing verses of chapter 7. And when you come to Brian Baptist Church, you hear about all of this. I mean, you have the opportunity, as we preach the Word of God, to see it verse by verse. That's the way we do it here. We preach it verse by verse, and so you have the opportunity to go through it. And the truth is, you'll go out here to many, many churches in our area, and they'll never do that. They won't even open the Bible sometimes. They're not going to preach the Bible verse by verse. And so we complain about that. And, and we complain about what churches do. We lock arms with one another in here and we say, well, you know, they ought not to do that. We'd never be a member of a church like that. And let me ask you, though, who is going to receive the greater judgment? Will it be those that are out there that have been deceived by a false prophet? Will it be those who have never actually heard the word of God taught in its truth, who never get the opportunity to look in the Bible and see it as we do, verse by verse, go through the entire Bible? They don't ever have that opportunity. And the question is, who is going to have worse in the judgment, them or us? What about people who have sat under the truth of the teaching of God's Word and they have never truly repented and trusted Christ? But they've deluded themselves. They're sitting under the preaching of truth and we wonder what's going to happen to them. How much worse will hell be for them? That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in those scriptures. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. Woe unto thee, Capernaum. Or if the mighty works that I had done here had been done over there in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. It's the same message that Jesus is giving us right here. 
You sit under the truth of God's word. Why haven't you repented of your sins? So Jesus is the judge that will condemn you. And what you can do is you can construct a picture of him, anything that you like. But the only one that counts is the true Jesus that preached this sermon and made these statements. He is the Savior of all who believe. There is no doubt about that. But he is also the judge. And the judge is going to judge how you respond to the message. Now lastly, I want to warn you again about the end of the sermon. Don't take your focus yet off of what's being said because the truly frightening conclusion is found in the next part where Jesus says, depart from me. And he means depart to damnation. Verse 23, And then I will profess unto them, I never knew ye, knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now the question before us then would be, what does depart from me mean? And let me say that we've already learned that contrary to what you usually hear, there are very few people that actually know Christ. Even church people are going to fall under the sentence of judgment. Now the question is though, what is that judgment? Well, I've heard a lot of untrue statements about it. And I hesitate maybe a little bit in some ways to tell you this. I don't want to burst your bubble about America's greatest evangelical leader. But Billy Graham had something to say about hell. And it wasn't a statement that was made when Billy Graham was old and feeble. This is a statement that was made 27 years ago. And concerning Jesus teaching about hell, here's what he said. This could be a literal fire, as many believe. Or it could be symbolic. I've often thought that this fire could possibly be a burning thirst for God that is never quenched. What a terrible fire that would be. Never to find satisfaction, joy, or fulfillment. And so according to Billy Graham, depart from me means that you will never find satisfaction, joy, or fulfillment. So being separated from God is really not much fun, according to Billy. And I do agree with him. It's not going to be much fun. But what did Jesus actually mean when he said, depart from me? You know, Matthew's a great book for you to read. If you want to understand what Jesus means, read the whole book. Read all of it. Because we find over in chapter 25 the very same words. If you look over there, chapter 25, verse number 41, we find the very, very same words. And he explains to us what he means. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And you go on to verse number 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now let me ask you something. Are the devil and his angels doomed never to find satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment? Are there no lounge chairs in hell for the devil? Is that what Jesus means? Revelation 14 and Revelation 20 also explain this to us. And there it tells us that hell is a place of torment and it says it is a lake of fire. Chapter 19 says that it's a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And Jesus said that it is everlasting. You know something? There wasn't a person in the crowd that day that misunderstood what he meant. They knew exactly what he meant. So this is really, I think, what makes this conclusion of self-deception so frightening. And that is because... You can go to hell from a church pew. And that's a sad truth for everybody in the room today. Jesus may indeed take you by the hand, but I hope it's not to drop you into the fires of hell. 
Now, don't tune me out, turn me off just yet, because I want to tell you once again that the Sermon on the Mount is intended to do exactly what I'm trying to do today, and that is to bring you to your knees. It is to show you your helplessness. It was preached to show that you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. All of us are. It was preached for us to examine our hearts, if we're saved, to see if we're in the faith. And certainly, to those, there were many there that Jesus preached to on that day that were on their way to hell. So he wanted them to examine themselves to see if they're really believing the truth. So you need to be saved. That's what Scripture says. And the good news is, you can be saved. Because Jesus died to take away the penalty of hell for you. Now, he took everlasting punishment, and he did that in his body on the cross for everyone who believes. And so if you truly believe, that's the way that you get to heaven. Truly believe in Christ. It doesn't do a bit of good to fool your family, to fool your friends, to fool people in the church, to fool me. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't do any good to fool yourself. You don't want to go to hell from the church pew. Because Jesus is teaching us here that hell burns hotter for those who do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. What a sobering message that we have before us. We can't slight this. We can't say that it wasn't said. We can't say that we don't believe it because if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we believe that he is the one who came down to this earth, who was born of a virgin, who was incarnated here, who went to a cross, if we believe all that, then we have to believe the very same word that tells us about these things. We have to believe that Jesus is telling the truth or we haven't believed in him at all. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impress upon people today that they would examine their hearts. Are they really in the faith? The Bible teaches there is a literal place called hell, a little fire that burns with torment for those who do not believe. Maybe we don't understand all of that. Maybe we haven't seen it all. But we certainly do know this, that Jesus went to the cross and he suffered hell for us so that we wouldn't have to go there. So I pray, Lord, you'd speak to some person's heart today. Help them to see that. And especially today, that you talk to church members, those who refuse to examine their faith and to see if they really are in it. For people that are seeking assurance, the way that we know that we are really in it is that we obey what you have told us to do. That is evidence of true faith. Speak to someone's heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.